Welcome to the Lighthouse Writers Workshop podcast, because sometimes what a writer needs most is other writers, even virtually. The participant readings are always a lit fest treat. 2015 was no different. Listen in on this second of three installations of the LitFest participants' reading, a spectrum of work follows, showcasing the depth and variety of the Lighthouse community. Hi, everybody. My name is J. Diego Fry. I'm going to... I'm going to... Yeah, that's what... I get that a lot. Um, but mostly it's when I'm alone in the bathroom. Um it about bathroom humor. It never goes over in these things. This is our uh, second of three participant, uh, LitFest participant readings. The uh, previous, the first participant reading was on the previous Tuesday and by all accounts it was the best um, participant reading that the LitFest uh, LitFest has ever seen. The the applause meter was way off the top. So um, obviously our readers tonight have their work cut out for them. Um, I'm kidding. It's not. It's not really. It's not really a competition. But it is. It's a competition. So, um, so our readers tonight uh, are. Um, um, I'm going to start. We're going to do seven readers, and then we'll take a short break so everyone can refill wine glasses and water glasses. And then we'll do the other six readers. Um, so let's get started. Our first reader of the night is um, Shauna Irvin. Is Shauna in the audience somewhere? Okay. Shauna obviously um, handed out some money before this reading, and it, it's paid off for her. Um, Shauna is a member of the Book Project. She's a, also also a big winner, um, and a mom with two young kids. Uh, she writes both poetry and nonfiction, and has, piece, has had pieces published in the Diverse Arts Project, Existence, and Forge, among others. And tonight she's going to read to us from her memoir in progress. Please welcome Shauna Irvin. <laughs> All right, this is the opening of the book. Are we going to keep her? Andrew blurted out the question as if it had burned his tongue. He sat near the front door watching his little sister, who was lying on her tummy, scribbling heavy pink lines across a piece of paper. Let's go, kids, I said. We were late for preschool, again. Grace tapped her shoes against the wood floor and hummed to herself while she colored. Andrew had one shoe on. Are we going to keep Grace? Of course we're going to keep her. I rushed past him into the kitchen and grabbed his lunchbox off the counter, then hurried back to the front door. She's part of our family. She's your sister. Where is your other shoe? He ignored me and combed his fingers through fringe on the area rug, tugged on a strand, and pulled it off. I looked behind the couch, under the couch, in the kitchen, under the dining room table, and in his bedroom for his shoe. Andrew, it's in the bathroom, he muttered. I had to go potty. My foot itched. I wondered if Grace understood what we were talking about. She colored as if she couldn't hear what we were saying or wasn't interested. I returned with Andrew's shoe and tried to wedge his foot into it. He left his foot limp. Are you going to keep me? 
Of course we're going to keep you. Push. If we go on a trip, if we go to Korea, will we come back? Will I? Will we bring Grace back? He talked fast, his tongue catching on the sounds he couldn't make yet with his speech delay. He shoved his feet into his Spider-Man shoes and sprung up. Grace toddled to us, littering crayons behind her. She held her picture toward me. Andrew focused on me but didn't move. Yes, I said, feeling time tightening on us. If we go on a trip, we'll come back home, here. This is where we live. We're a family, forever. We're staying together forever. Okay, can we go? We'll sleep in our room here. What's forever? Yes, you'll sleep in your room, both of you. You're stuck with Daddy and me. I laughed and poked his tummy. He pulled back and looked down as if he had been wounded. With a sigh, I looked at my watch and sat down. Grace plopped onto my lap and leaned her head back into my chest. Andrew took a step toward me, then another, each studied and intentional. Forever is a long time, I said. My voice caught on what I feared I couldn't promise and what I didn't believe. We'd been taught to use the term forever family in our adoption classes. At first I liked the idea, but before long a sneer developed under the idea of forever and what I felt pressured to promise, but in reality I couldn't. I could promise today. I could say I wanted to be together as long as possible, and I wanted to keep him safe as long as I could. But I couldn't get myself to say forever. After today? Yes, after today, and the next day, and a lot of days after that. The winter sun shone through our front window and glittered in his black eyes. He rested a hand on my shoulder and looked past me to tips of grass poking through melting snow. I had stopped asking about my own forever and had instead felt a nagging fear that no matter where I lived I would have to leave again. My emotional bags were always packed. Yet the longing remained for a place where someone wanted and expected me to return, where I wanted to stay. I heard Andrew's anxiety harmonizing with mine. I heard myself asking, will this end too? Grace stood and walked behind me. She leaned against my back and wrapped her arms around my neck. Come here. I patted my legs to Andrew. He sat down and I held him in my lap, rested my chin in his soft hair, and breathed in the scent of strawberry shampoo. Nothing you can do or say will change our love for you. This is your home. I said as much for me as for him. Forever is a lot of days after today. My voice broke and I let tears fall into his hair. I knew he must feel them, but he didn't move. He was quiet, breathing deeply. I let my breath match his. Grace rested her cheek against my back. With a deep breath, Andrew stood and looked at me. He took a strand of my hair in his hands, twisted it around his palm, and let it fall. He watched a tear slide down my cheek. Are you happy, Mommy? Yes, I said. Thank you, Shana. Up, up next, we have another poet who's not going to read poetry. Um, Andrea Doré, who is uh, one of my true loves among modern American poets, um, is a poet, essayist, and freelance writer. She writes for the Denver Post on its Colorado Voices panel, and her weekly opinion column in Colorado community media uh, newspapers uh, actually recently 
received a first prize um, in the serious col- best serious column writing category. And that was from the Colorado Press Association. It's a real, that's a real organization. Um, Andrea is an instructor in the Lighthouse Young Writers Program, and she volunteers in creative writing classrooms. She advocates for literacy, freedom of the press, and funny stories, and she blogs, tweets, and talks in her sleep about all of the above. Please welcome Andrea Doré. My column writing is some of my most satisfying and challenging writing, but I really like it because I get to tell people what I think and then tell them that they should think what I think. (laughs) So I'm going to read from one of my columns. Adding the power of un to your life. When an elementary school friend and I decided to go trekking in Nepal, she mentioned that this is one item on her bucket list. You're probably familiar with the concept of a bucket list, where we collect those dreams or adventures or accomplishments we hope to achieve while we still have time. I have never fully embraced the notion of a bucket list, though, for a variety of reasons, and one is that I'm not very good at planning ahead. Another is that I'm pretty open to what else might be out there. How could I list places and people and activities that I don't even know about yet. Recently, I learned of a writer, Rachel Waite, who developed her anti-bucket list, a collection of things she won't do or will ever have to do. (laughs) She begins each item on her list with, I will never, as in, I will never skydive, and I will never pay money to see a scary movie. Now, I agree with her about the scary movies, which is why I left before the shower scene last night in Psycho. But after skydiving to celebrate a milestone birthday, I would definitely do it again. In fact, if I did have a bucket list, that would have been at the top. But I like where Rachel Waite is going with her anti-bucket list. She says that although she's all for adventure, she also feels freedom in declaring the things she doesn't want to do. That got me thinking about what would be on my own list and what I would call it. I decided that mine is an un-bucket list. Un, as in unfull, empty. I'm going to work on emptying a bucket full of contents that I don't need anymore. Therefore, I will unstuff. A few years ago, I embarked on a divesting campaign, reducing the amount of things I own by selling some, giving some away, and just plain tossing some. I've lightened my physical load considerably, and there's more yet to go. I will unremember. I once told a good friend that I can forgive but not forget. She said that meant I really didn't forgive, but I don't agree. Some experiences should be remembered so that we don't get ourselves into similar situations again. But I also have a memory full of small slights and misunderstandings that I am going to let go of. Really. No, really. I will unjudge. 
This one is not as hard as it sounds. When I feel myself heading in that direction, I remember that everyone is fighting some kind of battle. This makes it easier for me to relax about people who cut me off in traffic or go through the express checkout lane with more than 15 items and you know who you are. I will unregret. Seriously, if I could empty my bucket of regrets, well, let's just say there would leave there would leave room for a lot more things that I would be unworried about, unguilty about, and unembarrassed about, such as the header I took in the rain at the uh, kickoff party here. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that I won't ever create a bucket list for the reasons I mentioned and more. But I've become a true believer in the power of un. <laughs> Thanks, Andrea. You know, my, my problem with bucket lists is that they're all too long. <laughs> um. Our next reader, uh, actually, I got a chance to be on television with our next reader um, on a morning show called Colorado and Company, I think. So we, were, we were brought in as poets to, uh, to pimp um, National Poetry Month, and um, I'm sure she prepared as hard as I did. And when we showed up, the producer brought us into the green room and said, okay, you'll have 15 seconds. <laughs> I think I think Marilyn took a few more than fifteen. She was smart. I panicked and okay. Um, Marilyn Raff is our next reader. Uh, Marilyn Raff is an author of three garden books, two chat books, in the palm of the land, and until class ends, both uh, published by Finishing Line Press. She is at work on a cookbook and a memoir with poems, and tonight she's going to be reading the poems. Um, reading poems, numb to the world, and a Rockwell painting of a different sort. Please welcome Marilyn Reff. A Rockwell painting of a different sort. Like a gigantic whale, his skin pours over porcelain as her father sits on the toilet seat. A newspaper lies open on a lap of fleshy thighs one whose body will soon die. Wrinkled shorts fold in layers. Below knees cover slippers, covered toes. On calves, curly dark hair smothers to the core. To the core, all pours longing as the child looks in the door. Numb to the world. I spent 40 years on the prowl, searching for a mom and friends like you who behaved like an icicle, unwelcoming. You never comforted me when dad died. No mom to hug and cry with, only to cover mirrors like good Jews do. You continued to knit and crochet on the sofa without expression. I didn't attend the funeral, just sent to a friend's house because at age 10, you imagined me too young. 
Mom, we never talked or spent time together. Rather, you shopped, decorated our house with silk linen, dotted Swiss curtains, and dined out often, leaving me with maids always. Any cooking I learned, such as homemade apple pie, drizzled with melted butter, sprinkled with colored sugar, and shaping matzo balls in float, salty, liquid water, light as feathers, came from Anne, our living maid. In the kitchen close to her, I watched white potato lumps swim in steamy milk, mashed with butter, spooned on decorative dinner plates. Once a week, I swung open our beveled glass door, returning from school. Cora, another maid, with warm cocoa skin, tore herself away from polishing silver, wrapped her sweaty arms around me, saying, Maylene, Maylene. She smacked my cheeks with wet kisses. Her sweat-stained armpits released a foul scent. Her zoftic bosom engulfed me. Years passed. Feeling unwanted, I shut down. To sleep, threw up in a wastebasket as you nagged me to move, to do something. When I didn't respond to anything, became lethargic, you wondered why. Get her going, you growled at doctors. Do something. What am I paying you for? Dragged kicking and screaming to a mental institution, nurses in fitted white outfits locked on black straps buzzed her head repeatedly. For years, I walked around like a zombie, filled hollowness with food, watched television, inspected closets stacked with towels, toilet paper, visited Anne, who ironed in the basement. I roamed our house dazed, numb to myself, numb to the world. Future, in future decades, flowers cracked open my heart. I rubbed soil between my fingers, silk burgundy petals, yellow whorls of Jerusalem sage unfurled as rose-scented blossoms drenched by sunlight resonated in me. I caressed floral bouquets, plopped stout stems one by one, in a smoky gray vase filled with water. Now, at 62, four years after your death, I am finally responsible for my, myself. Thank you, Mom, for giving me life. Thank you, Marilyn. That was rich. All right. Next reader of the evening is uh, Lauren McCain. Um, where is she? Um, lo- <laughs> it's that kind of audience tonight. L- Lauren McCain is a longtime wildlife advocate um, who currently works for Defenders of Wildlife. She's assisted with endangered species project- conservation projects in Mongolia, Botswana, Peru, and other places in the world, fun to pronounce. And um, she is now writing about some of her adventures. She will be reading from her nonfiction essay, The Prairie Dog Days, which is a personal narrative piece about her many years trying to protect one of the most controversial animals of the American West. Please welcome Lauren McCain. My best friend Nicole and I squatted next to each other to pee in the bar ditch beside a rural dirt road near the Kansas border 
in Kit Carson County, Colorado. Our friends, Jared, Scott, and Greg, stood guard at the vehicle while the coast remained clear. The gently undulating terrain of the high plains surrounded us, all grass and sky. Nerves returned the impulse to urinate as soon as I zipped up my jeans. The pop of gunshots in the distance made the muscles in my neck twitch and tighten. It was July 3, 1997, and we were preparing to try to stop a prairie dog shooting contest. Our plan involved illegally trespassing onto private cattle pastures, walking in front of a lineup of armed men, locking our necks together with kryptonite bike locks and heavy chains, sitting in the middle of a prairie dog colony and getting arrested in lieu of getting shot. Prairie dogs are highly social rodents in the squirrel family who live in colony groups that cooperatively dig complex underground tunnel networks. Their burrow openings polka dot the grasslands of the American West, though to an ever-decreasing extent. Prairie dogs feed on grasses and flowering plants during the day, making themselves vulnerable to natural predators and hollow-point bullets. The mid-morning sun brought out the cobalt and fervor in Nicole's eyes. She had her long, dark hair pulled back into a messy, efficient ponytail as usual. At nearly a head taller than me and with her hands on her hips, she looked indomitable. We should have been more afraid of getting shot, but we were most afraid of not saving enough prairie dogs to justify the risk, perhaps, perhaps recklessness. But I was all in, ready to do anything for the P-dogs, and in those days, always up for a protest. During shooting competitions, men, well, mostly men, position themselves on the edge of a prairie dog colony to rack up body counts purely for fun and not for meat. They brag about exploding prairie dogs into bloody bits and laugh about flippers, shot with such force the animals somersault in the air as they die. One shooting collective calls itself the Red Mist Society, another the Varmint Militia. I stuff my day pack with a water bottle, my bike lock, and the books I plan to read in jail over the long Independence Day weekend. <laughs> my PhD comprehensive exams were scheduled for fall at the University of Colorado at Boulder, where Nicole and I met as political science graduate students. Nicole was in the midst of composing her dissertation about the U.S. Endangered Species Act, the ESA, one of the strongest environmental laws in the country, the law she called her lover. We joked about the copious amounts of reading and writing we could get done if handed the 2.5-year max prison sentence. <laughs> Greg w- r- wished us luck and drove off. Once the car's dust trail cleared, we turned to face down the four-strand barbed wire fence between us and the first pasture, a seeming threshold of no return. Doped up on adrenaline, I grabbed a fence post, put a boot on the second strand, and hoisted myself over the wires. We couldn't see the shooters from our vantage point and marched along a shallow drainage and toward the sound of rifle fire. Thank you, Lauren. See, this is what they do. They, they read you just like the part that leads up to the most exciting part, and then they go sit down. Our next reader uh, is Annette Taylor. Annette Taylor grew up in England but has lived in Denver for a quarter of a century, the last four years of which, she says, have been immeasurably enhanced by lighthouse classes and camaraderie. She feels blessed to be in the book project with Brad Wetzler as mentor for narrative nonfiction. 
and with an inspiring group of writers. By trade, Annette is a molecular geneticist, and the book she is writing, Tales in, Genetic, Tales in Genetics, is an inside glimpse into how genetic testing is transforming medicine. She'll be reading from a chapter about breast cancer with her vantage point as both a lab director and a patient. Please welcome Annette Taylor. everyone. I can't tell you how happy I am um, that you're all here and I'm having this opportunity to um, share with you. Um, I want to dedicate my reading today to Christy Bailey, um, who sadly passed away on Friday, as you all know now, I'm sure, um, after a valiant battle with inflammatory breast cancer. She will be remembered always as a beloved member of the Lighthouse family and a model for us all with her joie de vivre, her spunk, and her enormous warmth. So, Tales in Genetics. Rounding the corner into the dining room on the third floor of Sunrise Senior Living, I was relieved to see the back of Mom's tall wheelchair. She was still up. It was 5.30 p.m., and on some days, she'd already been turned in for the night by now. Hey, it's me. How you doing, Nanan? Her eyes got big, and she scrunched, scrunched up her nose in pleasure. I took her face in my hands and gave her a big kiss on her bony cheek. You look so pretty in your maroon scarf. Mom's shoulders were sharp under her gray patterned pullover, and her face was more gaunt than ever. But her green eyes dazzled, and her essence of spunk and elegance was still strong. Mom had descended rapidly into severe dementia, perhaps from a stroke the summer before, leaving her able to say only single words when the blankness lifted for an instant now and then. Gad, when I told her a dear friend was coming to visit. Brad Pitt, she said with a swoon. <laughs> when I read her the movie review of Fury. Mom's downfall had coincided with the beginning of my treatment for breast cancer. No matter how grown up we feel, needing our mother comes naturally with this diagnosis. Losing her was inextricably entwined in my journey with breast cancer. My grief over her often eclipsing the anxiety over my own medical challenges. She stopped being able to eat and was surviving on three insurers a day, um, and her weight was plummeting under 80 pounds um, by this May 2015 visit. Compared to daily sadness about mom, my cancer treatment seemed relatively manageable between deep breaths of resolve. I decided to make the most of it and have some fun. Before my surgery, following a capricious impulse, I had a series of classy boudoir nude-above-the-waist photos <laughs> taken to capture a memory of my body before possible changes. It was a lark. <laughs> I became bald on day 18 after my first chemo treatment, exactly during the three-day window predicted by my oncologist. I was well-prepared but it was a strange experience. Luckily, I was in the shower washing my hair. 
sheets came off in my hands, and I kept rinsing and gathering, rinsing and gathering, until it was all in a big ball on the shower floor like a fat hedgehog. Daring to look in the foggy mirror afterwards, a cancer patient was staring back at me. Baldness, I discovered, had its funny moments. When top knotless, sometimes at home, I found myself caressing my head the way bald men do. <laughs> I get it now. It feels fun. <laughs> having, having one's first dog after being a cat person all one's life raises your awareness of all dogs in our world. The same goes for baldness. I began to notice and identify with bald men. I now know firsthand that their heads are cold when they're out in sub-40 degree weather without a hat. At a party with dear friends, I threw caution to the wind, gathered three bald men I know and love, flung off my wig, and had a photo taken to memorialize the band of baldies. Betty is my dream neighbor, flamboyant and big-hearted, just a wave away through our facing Victorian arched windows. She is my model breast cancer survivor, having approached her treatment 11 years ago with much vim and a bright purple wig. She had a wig party back then, which I considered a true inspiration. I decided to follow in her footsteps. My wig party was at a hair salon, Fleur, owned by warm-hearted and flamboyant stylist Tommy. It was a perfect venue, blending modern chrome, black, and turquoise decor with classic chandeliers. The guests hammed it up with wigs, fluorescent bright blue, clown red with matching nose, Elvis, George Washington, Jesus. We had readings of funny or inspirational poems, Rumi's The Guest House, selections from Walt Whitman's life-affirming leaves of grass, my favorite line being, I believe a leaf of grass is no less than the journey work of the stars. David Rothman's hilarious poem, It's Not Easy Being Me, about Superman afflicted by hypersensitivity to grammatical errors. (laughs) The wig party was a most joyous event, an outpouring of love and celebration from friends all around me. Thank you for those of you who are here. It was one of the happiest evenings of my life. I have a hunch that my genes come to my rescue. I feel joy readily and have always wondered if I'm wired to make more endorphins than usual. Recent research has shown that one gene associated with happiness is the serotonin transporter, which carries this feel-good chemical around the brain. Joe Dispenza's book, You Are the Placebo, shows evidence from neuroscience and psychology that healing is strongly influenced by belief in healing. The placebo effect from drug trials is a real phenomenon of the power of the mind. I'm a strong believer. Not only was I lucky to have steadfast friends, family, and genes, but throughout all my treatments, I was armed with a World War II green toy soldier safe in my purse. (laughs) Neighbor Betty had been the source of the soldier story. Her son Will, then 11, accompanied her to her lumpectomy surgery, toting a big bag of toy soldiers. What's with the soldiers, Will? She'd asked playfully. Mom, this is the war on cancer. I'm bringing the soldiers. (laughs) 
Returning after surgery, Betty found the waiting room had been transformed into a battle scene with soldiers strategically perched on tables, um, door jams, the reception desk, and even peeking out between foliage and planters. The surgeon was so regaled, she asked Will if she could keep some of the soldiers to help the other cancer patients. I ran into Will shortly after my diagnosis and told him I'd been much entertained by the uh, soldier story. Hang on, I still have soldiers, he offered with a glint in his eye. A few minutes later, there was a knock on my door, and there he was with a bulging bag. I grinned, pulled out a soldier, and shoved it down my bra. <laughs> Thank you. What, what a great image to end on. Thank you. Um, our next reader tonight is uh, Judith Sarah Gelt, who's. Um, Or, or JSG, as I call her. Um, Judith is a Denver native. She's um, a memoirist and personal essay writer. Um, and um, the thing she wants to say about memoir and personal essay is that uh, her daughter is currently pregnant for the first time, and she finds herself very glad or holding out hope that her daughter doesn't become a memoirist and write about her mother. Please give a warm welcome to Judith Sarah Gelt. Thank you. Um, the memoir I'm reading from, it's a stripped-down um, excerpt from the memoir Trading in Crazy, and it's about um, separating from my bipolar mother and angry father to find myself, my own sanity, and then return home. The only thing you need to know is that in this scene, I'm 16, and I've just had a horrible fight with my father. Outrage moved my legs, and thoughts of going to school evaporated. When I reached the interstate, my platform shoes stood on a strip of dirt bordering asphalt. As wind blasts from passing cars tossed my long hair, the line between real and pretend vanished. I extended my arm, formed a fist, and pointed my thumb toward the sky. It seemed just minutes until a blue two-door slowed and pulled off, kicking up a cloud of dust. I opened the passenger door and lowered myself into vinyl seat. His voice was friendly. He could have been in high school or maybe college, and he wore a tidy white t-shirt and blue jeans. His clean, shaggy blonde hair stopped at his ears. This was the standard look for boys his age, boys who attended school and had jobs. Nice boys. Maybe I said thanks. Then it was silent except for the engine's low rumble. Cool air blew in my face through dash vents. The radio wasn't on. No eight tracks played. The car cruised south past all familiar exits. Castle Rock, Air Force Academy, Colorado Springs. Then a stretch of road with no turnoffs at all. Make-believe was over. Did you miss your bus? Can I drop you at school, he asked. My books, the knee-length skirt, my white pleasant peasant blouse. I was just some girl going to school. My shoulders tensed. I'm not on my way to school. He must have known this. His voice was casual. Where are you going? Where are you going? 
God, I had no ideas, no destination, no money. Hitchhiking wasn't uncommon, but I knew tales of single girls making easy prey. Rape and assault flashed in my mind, and I crossed my legs, uncrossed them. I have to be in Texas, he said. I've been in Boulder visiting my girlfriend. I need to be back for class tomorrow in Lubbock. I'm at Texas Tech. I tried to keep my legs in the crossed, more mature pose. Can you take me to Texas then? Why not? I just kept making it up as I went. Okay, I need company to stay awake, he said. The car continued south, houses and buildings, then nothing but flat fields of brown floated past. Distant mountains looked like a painted stage set. The bloated sun climbed. He expected me to talk, to keep him awake, to show him I was ordinary. I offered nothing. By sitting in a stranger's car, sailing toward Lubbock, Texas, instead of in Mr. Crobb's Algebra II class, I had crossed a normalcy line. I knew that. Hot late morning lit up tiresome, dusty landscape. I didn't carry sunglasses in my lumpy bag and squinting spread thumping from temple to temple. Rallying anger about my father had shoved concerns about my future out of the way, but worry muscled in. We'd arrive in Lubbock, Texas, and then what? Even though guilt about leaving my mother was sure to clog my veins, now my blood pulsed with energy from leaving home. But sooner or later, I'd have to leave this car. I began to form a plan. I had worked as a maid at the Belcaro Motel the summer before, now dropped off in some tourist district. I could ask about openings until someone hired me. Then I'd request a room instead of a check, at least at first. I said, I need to get a hotel or motel job. This was the longest sentence so far. Maybe you can let me out someplace nice in Lubbock? He nodded, and I relaxed into vinyl seat back. We drove down the Lubbock exit ramp after traveling 550 miles together and knowing nothing about each other. The forsaken street must have been what he thought I meant by someplace nice. But I gazed at old brick buildings with unadorned fronts. There were no smiling people exiting restaurants. The sidewalks were wide, gray, and bare. Worse, lights from inside buildings created shadow shapes on the concrete and asphalt. The once orange sky had darkened to deep violet at the horizon. Sitting next to this stranger, I realized his car was my refuge from the bigger unknown. If safety was this slippery, would I ever feel secure? My hands trembled. He pulled to the curb, turned off the engine. We made quick eye contact. He smiled and said, there are some hotels on this street. Then I left the car for the first time and stepped to empty sidewalk. Hot Texas air pressed in as I watched him drive away. I straightened uncertain legs as humid night penetrated every pore. The air was sticky, the sky inky black. My feet felt cemented in place. It was the time of night to finish homework, get ready for bed. My unhappiness nudged me, and I strode to the end of the block. I was running out of sidewalk when I entered a poorly lit lobby, plodded past, worn, faded furniture, and approached a cluttered counter. The air tasted stale. Can I help you? I faced a middle-aged man. Are you hiring any maids? I can't cry. I'm not certain about that right now, he said. Where'd you come from? Did he care? His voice was friendly. He wasn't wearing a suit and tie, just short white shirt sleeves and a woven string-type tie hooked with a silver star at the collar like he was playing sheriff. I just got to town from Denver. I have nowhere to stay. I was hoping to find a hotel job and maybe get a room temporarily in place of any pay. I have experience. 
I stared at faded wallpaper behind him. What's going on there, Ben? A huge woman filled a doorway behind the counter. This young lady's looking for a job. Now his voice was stiff. Tell her we don't need anyone. She left and hope vanished with her fat body. He held my eyes with his. Just hold on a second, he mumbled. And after fumbling under the counter between us, his hand came up holding a water dollar bill. I trembled. He extended his arm. I reached for the bill and toddled backward until ducking outside. Then, with no one in sight, I stood on the sidewalk and smoothed it flat. As I realized I held a five, tears spilled off my chin. Thank you, Judith. Is the Belcaro Motel still still yes. in business? Oh, yes. <laughs> um, one more reader, and then we'll take a um, five to seven minute break. Um, our our next reader is uh, Chris Ferris. Is where's Chris? <laughs> Chris Ferris is a mom, a writer, an educational consultant, and a charter school leader. Uh, she is currently in the process of launching her second charter school here in Denver. Uh, it's called Reach. Um, she's working on a memoir about her development as a leader and the founding of her first charter school in Los Angeles. Her, uh, the book, called School of My Heart, also examines American education policy and current research on learning and human development. Please welcome Chris Ferris. I want to start by thanking my daughter, Lucy, for letting me read this tonight, even though she's now 13 and no longer three. All week, I've been struggling with my new role at the school as the curriculum director. I wondered, how do you start creating change in a school without causing resentment among the staff? I had long believed that how I taught was as important as what I taught, that how I treat children teaches them about their value and their place in the world, even more than the content of any history lesson. Now I had to think about how I wanted to lead. That Friday, I left school a bit earlier than usual and decided to treat my kids to a snack at Starbucks. We stood in a short line in the cool, dim store. The coffee smell was soothing. Seven-year-old Owen stuck close to me, contemplating whether he wanted vanilla milk or a strawberry frappuccino. Lucy turned and said hello to the man standing behind us. He did not look down to acknowledge her. She said hello again, more loudly. He continued to stare over her, lost in his own thoughts. He was wearing a dark gray business suit, and he glanced down at his expensive watch. She moved over closer to him, her toddler-sized three pink cowboy boots, almost toe-to-toe with his shiny black dress shoes. She squatted down slightly and craned her head up to look into his face. Her bright blonde bob fell back from her cheeks. I said hello, she smiled up at him. (laughs) Oh, um, hi, he replied, and then he smiled at her. She grinned and then spun around to march up to the counter to tell me her order. She had so much power in the world. Lucy got her way much of the time with many people, from her brother to her dad to her babysitter and her classmates at preschool. I remembered then my stepdad, Mike, playing with her when she was an infant. 
We were at their house for Christmas that year. He was on the green couch relaxing after the end of the semester. He was a veteran math teacher with still blonde hair and round, big glasses that framed his large blue eyes. She was crawling and just learning to stand up on those wobbly baby feet that seem so smooth and round that they are like walking on little bubbles. Her mouth was a constant stream of drool as she was working on new teeth, and her wispy blonde hair lifted in one long curl off the top of her head like a Cupid doll. She pulled herself upright next to him and cheered for herself. Yay, yay, with a grin. Mike took both of her hands in his and cheered along with her. Yay, yay. And then he started to speak for her in a high-pitched little baby voice. My name is Lucy. I'm so happy. Everyone loves me. Hooray. There's no resisting her, he chuckled. I'm the Speaker of the House of Representatives, and I say vote yes for universal health care. Yay. I say let's all vote for more money for public schools. Yay. She laughed and cheered along with him in absolute glee at this new game. Phew, there is no stopping what this one will be able to do, he said to me. I looked over at her, standing all two feet of her in the Starbucks store. The man behind us was still smiling at her. Maybe I could learn something about being a leader from my three-year-old. It was Lucy's joy, combined with her absolute clarity about what she wanted, that made her so powerful. I wondered if that was a combination I could master. This, I'm going to. I want to recite a poem. Uh, this is a poem from uh, my recent recent collection called "The Year the Eggs Cracked," and it's this is my giving myself a little commercial as the payment for being the MC. Thanks, Mike. Thanks, Andrea. Uh, the Year the Eggs Cracked, which uh, came out from, from Conundrum Press in April and is available in um, woo, in quantities over on that shelf. In the corner there. Um, This poem is called The S is for Salmonella. (laughs) Our hostess does not wish to kill, but the shrimp puffs have an axe to grind. (laughs) She served them up, we ate our fill. Our hostess does not wish to kill, but the heat of day and the lack of dill have turned these shrimp puffs most unkind. (laughs) Our hostess does not wish to kill, but the shrimp puffs have an axe to grind. (laughs) Thanks. That's um, from the the Ear the Eggs Cracked by J. Diego Fry. Um, And we've got six six more readers tonight. um, And I just want to say before we get started, because I might not have a chance at the end, this is like a great audience for participant reading. Thank you, everybody, for coming out. It's, uh, thank you so much for being out here supporting your, your fellow students reading. Um, our next, our first reader of the second part of the reading is um, Jack, Jacqueline St. Joan or Jacqueline St. Joan? Jackie. Jackie. Jackie St. Joan. Where is Jackie? Hi, Jackie. Um, Jackie St. Joan is the author of a novel. Um, called My Sister's Made of Light, which is published by Press 53, and which was a finalist for the 2011 Colorado Book Award in, in Literary Fiction. 
Um, her poetry has appeared in the Denver Quarterly, Ms. Magazine, Choke Cherries, and other journals and anthologies. And she will read Choreography, which is a five-part poem inspired by Mark Doty's uh, workshop at last year's Lit Fest and by, I remember, I believe, by Bernice Johnson Regan. Please welcome Jackie St. Joan. Thank you. <clears throat> Choreography. One. These of geese are sewing Denver back into its morning where telescopic, multifaceted periscopes take in the entire dance and climb. To the west, snow-peaked triangles downtown, rectangles of finance and domes of government. Under the interstate, warehouses of industry and puffs of cottonwood along the river. The city's trains with their long lines of fat tankers and flats coo into the sunrise. Semi-trucks' engines turned over earlier in the dark, while busy moms with little car seats woke early just to be still and alone. From my back deck, I watch the geese stitching with their black needles. I know they are only a speck of the dance, and this moment is all of it. Two. Even DNA dances, microscopic, subatomic, or less, beyond what I can imagine the body to be. Our molecules jump their charged moments and surge to go, not with purpose or place, but to move. My heart pumps quartz every minute through lengths of blood vessels that, stretched out, could crisscross the Pacific Ocean twice. Fifty-two bones in my feet, flat as a deck of cards, lucky to have ligaments and tendons to bend and to twist to allow both a curtsy and a kick. Three. Ten women spaced apart in a studio with a wooden floor and walls of mirrors where for one hour we will be a universe of movement. First we buzz, wondering what the music will be this time. Strings for a Bollywood hip-shaking or Indian windpipes cooing or blues from a pained throat or jazz hands spread in surprise, a hip-hop fist pumping, a stomping jig or a Charleston swing. It starts inside a moment, but then a step backward and forward, a repetition and reversal as our faces become our real faces. No chit-chat, none of that. Bones find their right places and the skin begins to cleanse itself. We attend the beat as the voices of the universe announce themselves. An unexpected horn blares in the heating and cooling of prayer. When we did that, we were wild geese flying and we were something. Four. Life is not a dance, exactly. What I am trying to say is that both are an outside movement from an inside moment that will not stay put. When I say the geese dance, it is a metaphor for their search for food, the constant driven work of their sleek bodies. When a family of waddlers blocks the city park road, some taking their own sweet time to cross over, some waiting, others daring forward, then changing their minds, I stop my car for them in my capsule of amazement. 
I want to wrap my arms around one of the big ones and carry it into the dance floor. Switch off all the lights, no others. Just me, the music, and the goose. Teach me, I say, flipping a switch on the sound system, hoping it's something the goose likes. Five. In the front of the studio, the goose faces away for a moment, listening. And when she turns back, she opens her beak. She cries out the deep voice of gospel. I don't know how my mother walked her troubles down. I don't know how my father stood his ground. I don't know why the angels woke me up this morning soon. I don't know why blood still runs in my veins. She stands there so still, a bird with blues, maybe thinking of a fallen parent somewhere in a field over Nebraska, or her stolen egg, a lost fledgling. And I stand with her until her relentless eye closes and she takes a step backward. I take a step backward. Thank you, Jackie. That was exquisite. Is that is that true? Um, not the not the whole thing. Just the part about the your veins being if you stretch them out, they would. Wow. What about the what about the part about the the goose singing gospel? Was that true? Thank you, Jackie. Um, our next uh, reader is Liz Westerfolk. Where's Liz? Liz? Liz Westerfeld. Liz Westerfeld is a writer and a consultant who lives in Denver, um, and uh, she will be reading tonight uh, a short personal essay uh, called titled "Running Away." Please welcome. As <laughs> she makes her way. Long way. Another thing you should know about Liz. Please welcome Liz Westerfeld. Thank you. That's great. Running away. Today, my mother began the process of running away. When her friend and companion, Judy, walked into her room at the nursing home, she noticed that tote bags and plastic bags were filled with some of my mother's favorite things, the soft pink hand-knit throw on her bed, the woven shawls that I had given her over the years. She greets my mother, leaning into her wheelchair to give her a hug and deciding to ignore the packed bags. What are we going to do today? My mother is sad and lost and doesn't know what to do with these feelings. She knows that something isn't right. She is having hallucinations, seeing my cousin magically appear in a movie and asking me, what really happened to him? She cries gently in the morning because she thinks my brother died. 
Her world is a mosaic right now of real experiences and the intrusion of dark thoughts without distinction. Later in the day, Judy tells me that the plans for running away have now become more tangible. She is considering asking for the paperwork to sign herself out. I ran away a lot when I was little, I explain. I had a small suitcase that I packed up at about age six and headed out, planning to sleep on the neighbor's lawn. I was usually upset and sad and wanted to get away from some of the conflict at home. My mother or father would come out to talk to me, and I would cry and go back home. I always intended to really leave. Now my mother declines exercise class and isn't sure getting her hair done is a good idea. This is a big sign. My mother commented throughout my teen years and into my 20s that the problem with my generation is that we had too many choices. She chose instead to weave her life around, sorry, to to weave her life together with routines that carried her. She was also an immensely flexible woman, always saying, don't rush, relax, this is your vacation, when we visited at the summer house that my great-grandfather built on the coast of Connecticut. The routines, though, I think were a kind of lattice that she grew everything on. Up at six, her quiet time, with coffee before the day began. For me, the early part of the day is dark and unapproachable. I only like it if I um, am up with a destination in mind. The late night is my quiet time, and the period between midnight and one, when the house is almost silent, is particularly remarkable in its stillness. My mother is part of the culture that had cocktails at six, the news at seven, and dinner at 7.30. As she aged, she adopted the ritual of going to the beauty parlor once a week to have her hair washed like her mother did. She carried this with her when she went to the nursing home. She is a can-do girl who has employed the attitude that she learned as a camper for seven summers in a row. If there is an an activity, you throw yourself into it and participate. She loves the gentle exercise class that she attends in her wheelchair. She enjoys lunch with a new friend who has a very optimistic, friendly form of dementia and wants everyone to be comfortable and happy. My mother is aware of how much she eats. Not too little, not too much, except when it comes to dessert. When we visit her, a table for four is her preference. A perfect table, she will say. She has taught herself to continue with routine, Whatever it is, even when she doesn't feel like it, because it usually makes things better. After lunch, she says to Judy, I want to go to my room. I feel I am incarcerated, she says. When asked why, she says it's because the woman next to her didn't eat anything, and mom feels everyone turns away from her. Judy and I wonder if she has attached her feelings to the place. She used to like living at the health center, and now mom is mixed up and knows something is wrong and feels perhaps if she leaves that her feelings will also be left behind. She wants to move back to her summer house, but somehow can't calculate in that she is in a wheelchair and needs help with every basic need. I like it when Judy can take mom to the house to sit in the yard, and now we wonder if that is a good idea. Does this remind my mother that she has a house, and why isn't she living there? As the day winds down, Judy looks around at the packed bags and says to my mother, Shall I start putting these things away? And my mother nods. When I call my mother, she says, Judy was such a big help today. 
and I'm not sure she quite remembered the plan to run away. Thank you, Liz. Our next reader is uh, Beth Paulson. Where's Beth? Hi, Beth. Beth Paulson lives in Ridgeway, Colorado. Where's Ridgeway? Uh, between Uray and Telluride. Nice area. Beth, Beth Paulson lives in Ridgeway, Colorado, where she teaches writing classes and leads Poetica, which is a monthly workshop for area writers, and she co-directs the Open Bard Poetry Series. Her poems have appeared nationally in over 100 journals and anthologies, and she's received three Pushcart Prize nominations. Her newest book, Canyon Notes, was published in 2012 by Mount Sneffels Press. What a great name for a press. Um, Please give a warm welcome to Beth Paulson. J.D. His first poem is called Driving the Pass. Two slim lanes and no guardrail, only road to take me south from the Colorado mountain town I call home. Inside, massive walls of ruby sandstone hold back by net places rock falls outside steep bouldered banks drop to a creek, rubble and snow filled into summer, not near enough to cushion a rollover. Someone dies here almost every year. Why others drive the center line, white-knuckled, counting hairpin curves, mile markers to Ironton's wide valleys, where the way widens to gravel shoulder and low grass. Here, I've learned to live with danger, shift and slide. No avalanche is a season. And chances I once took for love or wealth, I forget. All my older fears recede. Today, a cobalt sky stretched high and far over red cliffs is a prayer to stay between the yellow stripes and absent verge on four small wheels in glass and steel for gravity to hold me through the pass all space unknown just breathe in the thin air and don't look down (laughs) the heart of matter now we know Everything we know is stitched together of electrons and quarks. Tiny menage a trois, named up, down, top, bottom, charm or strange, in a psychedelia of red, green, blue, particles behaving more like waves, quarks and gluons forming protons and neutrons, Leptons becoming electrons and neutrinos. The whole choir of fermions carried through the aisles of existence by heaped legions of bosons. The universe, including a new one called Higgs, 
physicists finally caught up with, so much exists we do not see. The universe in its blind vastness, a magnitude of numbers we struggle to comprehend. Space-time's fourth dimension that marks our human lifespan, Earth's gravity that comforts us, and a force magnetic that draws us as it did young Einstein when, sick in bed, he turned in his hands a small compass. Petal, feather, table, moth wing. How can one field permeate the whole of creation and hold us, small fish, in our earthly tank? What I know this summer night, one tenuous moment of our being, subtle rhythms of our heartbeats, atoms of our cells merging with quivering uncertainty, the quanta inside us and everywhere, elusive and mysterious as faith and love. Thank you. Um, tiny menage a trois. <laughs> Isn't that all any of us really want? Just... <laughs> That was a great poem. Thanks. Um, our next reader is um, Ellie or L? L Nash. L. Hi, L. Um, L Nash, who's right there at the end, back of that. Woo! L Nash is a, a writer in Denver, Colorado, uh, living with her husband, her cat, and their weird roommate. Is the weird roommate here? Okay. Um, she believes that art is never a solitary act. Um, her most recent work appears in the L.A. Review of Books offshoot magazine called The Offing, in Hobart Pulp, and in Nailed magazine. And the title of the fiction piece she'll be reading tonight is called um, is, uh, A Partial List of People I've Blocked on Facebook. <laughs> Please welcome L. Nash. Um, can you hear me? I'm not used to microphones. Okay, and I, I have allergies. I'm sorry. I kind of sound sick. but Okay, here's a partial list of people I've blocked on Facebook. One, Nev, who held me while I cried and is now pregnant with someone else's child. Once we shared a home and I walked bow-legged from the bathroom down the hallway, holding bleeding hands to my private parts. Both the blood and my body fell into bed and Nev held me there, pressed her lips to my forehead soaked in sweat. She held me strong and stroked my hair and said, everything is going to be okay. Each heart was broken by the other, so I disappeared. Her belly is filling up the void I left. Two, Gabby, power girl boss, was in New York City when 9-11 happened, addicted to Xanax. She threatened to withhold my last paycheck of $37 because I quit on her. The job was spray tanning naked rich women by hand. Three, Jordan, whose name means the lowest point in the fortunes of a person. I downloaded apps so I could get his calls and texts from Prague for free. He loved me because I could be what he wanted at any time, a digital skeleton wife with flesh made whole in his immaculate perception. He would call during his lunch breaks, a time when I'd just be waking up at someone else's house. When I stopped answering, he began to fight like a child. I regret the things I did on Skype. 
for Naomi, the kind of girl who would go through cosmetology school and work at cost cutters. Her ballet dancer lips and fluorescent teeth made me weak. I am fucking her by proxy, dating her ex-boyfriend. <laughs> Five, Jacob, whose frameless bed I'd crawl out of at 4.30 a.m. to get to work. Plaid sheets in the trailer park bedroom. He got a really cute girlfriend before I blocked him. Even though I helped him through a really bad breakup and I was also going through a really bad breakup, the girl seemed really good for him. Despite her, he'd do cocaine and drink a lot of beer and call me on a Thursday night trying to come over. Thursday is during the work week, which is when things need to get done. Meeting with me was like a necessity, not something he did to relax or unwind. There's a decade-old part of me he knew about, a life before Facebook, a life in flesh. Fucking in parks in the small town we both grew up in. Also in his truck, or when his girlfriend wasn't home. A different girlfriend, ex-girlfriend. The ex is on my Facebook feed now. I've even bought some of the art she sells on Etsy. <laughs> At some point months later, he called in the middle of the night asking me if I was falling in love with him. I was alone on a new mattress in summer with the windows open. Beer drunk is the realest person he ever was. He said my nickname from high school and then left a dramatic pause in between us, labored cell phone breath and the wind on my prickled skin. Then he asked, are you falling in love with me? And I said, no. He didn't say anything. Then later in a chat log, he said, I have a really hard time being your friend because I'm so in love with cutie pie, but I still think about you a lot. But online, there is no dramatic pause for breath or flesh. So I said, I'm sorry. He said, you don't have anything to apologize for. So I felt like I did a really good thing, blocking him without even saying goodbye, leaving a void like that for him to fill up, leaving him to guess. His comments on my photos are still there, except instead of a link to his profile page, it's just his name in black font, like a shadow of him that once existed. It's been about eight months. I haven't deleted the comments yet. <laughs> That was great, Elle. Thank you so much. All those great little details in that. that was frameless bed. Um, thank you, Elle. Our, our next uh, reader tonight is Tiffany Isaacs. <laughs> I like, I like in, in her bio... Um, sorry, I don't mean to make fun of your bio, but... Um, <laughs> Tiffany Isaacs, and she has, in parentheses, pronounced... Isaac apostrophe S. <laughs> <laughs> Tiffany Isaacs, right? Did I, did I get the possessive in there? Is a is a former Denverite who now lives in Nashville. Do you know Do you know Allison Enman? She's a former Denverite who lives in Nashville too. She's great. You should meet her. Um, Tiffany is. Uh, taking Matt Johnson's juried novel workshop at LitFest, and tonight she's going to be reading to us from a novel in progress about a fictional genocide in a fictional African co- country called Kustawe. Please welcome Tiffany Isaacs. This is kind of frightening, just the <laughs> technology thing here. Okay. As a warning, this is going to be dark, so if you're sensitive, it's about genocide, someone's about to die, you're warned. All right, here we go. Yes, I am Tootsie, 
And in, 2000, in the 2007 Kastawi genocide, I became Hutu, and I became a killer. 321 men, women, children, none were man, woman, nor child at the time. They were blurs, like you see in an out-of-focus picture, except for the first. He was still a man. To be precise, he was a boy of 14, but a man in the sense that he was not an animal. I butchered cattle for meat since boyhood. Killing this boy was not like slaughtering a cow. Neither was it like the other humans I slew, for with repetition, they too became animals. This boy was special, for he was still a man, and when the light leaves the eyes of a man, it means something. I, like most hunters during the time the earth bled, preferred a machete. Its movements were already part of my sinew. We hacked sorghum, banana trees, vines, undergrowth, firewood, brush, boys taught by fathers taught in turn by their fathers. The blade was part of me, and with the boy, my machete work was art, an intimate ballet. I lifted my arm behind me, machete extended straight as if it were a continuation of my limb. There I held it and watched him perform his response. His body froze, but his eyes danced of movement I would not forget, even if I could. At first, they were wide and dark. He did not plead, for he knew the moment for what it was. He went, instead, he went inside to replay his life. This is what you hear, anyway, from people who survive near-death experiences. Myself, I have not had such an encounter, but this is what I believe. In that first millisecond of what was to be his final breath, a movie played in his mind. It came to him in no particular pattern other than that ordered disorder of memory. It may have started with him finding himself in bed with his lover, filtered light, kissing her naked skin. Then her rusty scent took him to that day he stood before his soccer mates, soaked in his own sweat, as together they realized he had lost the season with one blunder. He rode his shame to the time he pissed himself in front of his second-grade crush, and she laughed and told him, Seven is far too old to wet yourself. Then her chestnut eyes glinted as his wife's did on that day in the hospital when she shone, radiant with exertion, a babe, his son, now asleep in her arms. But of course, these are the memories of a man, my memories. For the boy, they would have been a boy's version, moments chosen from a boy's life. But it is the same for us all. We see life in its composite of sex, scent, failure, piss, and love. We derive meaning as it suits, and then we accept what death comes. His movie done, the boy's eyes turn back to me. By this point, my swing had begun. The air whispered as I cut it, the blade flashed, and I saw it in the mirror of his eyes. He sensed then that what he knew was about to end. This is when his eyes transformed again. Black in a way that no eyes are black. Before me, he changed into something greater than a man, a god of vengeance whose lightless eyes could read my soul, see its corruption, and judge me beyond repair. The arc of the blade severed his head from his neck, a clean blow, merciful, if I may say so. His head landed face up in the mud, eyes still on mine, and for a last time, they transformed. Like butter, it started with the edges. Pupils expanded into the iris, then the color melted into the whites, and then it kept spreading until there was nothing left in the center but a puddle of hazel. In this final stillness, they remained, and it was then that my metamorphosis into Hutu was complete.
Thank you, Tiffany. Does does the novel have a title yet? Look for it. Look for it at Litfest on those shelves next year. Thank you. Okay. You can have two years, but that's it. And that was great. Thank you so much. Um, we have one, one last reader tonight. Um, and before I introduce him, I'd like to, once again, thank everybody for being here tonight. This, I mean, you've all had a great time. There's a reason why. This, these, these readings of the students at LitFest are the heart and soul of this whole two weeks. And it's, it's so, so great uh, to both participate and to be here watching the participants. So thank you so much again for coming. Our final reader of the evening is Mark Springer. I'm guessing. (laughs) Mark is an Entropy fan, except for when the Entropy is flooding his basement and interrupting Litfest, then, then he could do without the Entropy. However... Uh, Entropy abounds in his post-apocalyptic novel called The Possessors. Please welcome Mark Springer. Okay, so the scene I'm reading is not from the beginning of the novel, so you need three pieces of background. Premise, setting, and characters. Uh, The premise, the novel is an... uh, set after an environmental cataclysm has destroyed all the civilizations of the earth except one. The survivors and their descendants live in walled city-states protected by technology they don't understand and can't repair. Entropy, right? And now, a century and a half later, that technology is breaking down. The setting of the scene is the City of Light, the wealthiest and most powerful of the city-states In all the years since the cataclysm, the power has never once gone out in the City of Light, until now. It is night immediately after the lights have gone out. And the characters, Naomi and Ethan, are our protagonists. Naomi is married to the man responsible for keeping the power on. Ethan is the stranger who came to town at the beginning of the novel, a stranger with no memory of his past. Now Ethan is a soldier. Naomi and Ethan are out walking in the gardens beyond Naomi's home when the power fails. Do they go back to the house, or do they go on? They go on. And here's the scene. Naomi and Ethan continued along the path, slowly at first, then more freely as their eyes adjusted to the darkness. They passed through her grandfather's ornamental gardens and descended the terraced hillside to the forest below. Here, the shadows of the old-growth trees lay thick upon the darkened earth, and the path ahead seemed to disappear into a world beyond sight. If she had come upon this scene alone and in the light, she would have turned back. But now, with Ethan by her side under the dome of night, the shadows she had been taught to fear held no menace. Inspired by a childhood memory, she turned to Ethan and asked, Have you ever played hide-and-seek? He stared at her, uncomprehending. Of course you have, she said. You just don't remember. It's okay. I'll go first. Naomi, he said, What are you talking about? You'll figure it out, she said. 
and with that she bounded off the path into the forest. She was clever, and she knew the estate better than he did, but she was no match for his skill as a tracker. He found her quickly, effortlessly. No fair, she said, laughing. What now, he asked. Now it's your turn to hide, she said. I'll count to ten. But counting was unnecessary. He disappeared into the darkness before the words were even out of her mouth, a shadow among shadows, and she ran after him. Not that way, he said. Try again. A tangle of fallen branches blocked her way. She stopped and turned. His voice had come from behind her. How had he circled back so quickly without making a sound? Over here, he said. Now he was somewhere else, to her right, but she saw no sign of him. I know where you are, she bluffed. No, you don't. From behind her again. She followed his playful taunting through the trees until at last she stopped breathless in the middle of a clearing on a hillside, overlooking the sea. He was already there, waiting, a faint smile on his lips. He crossed the clearing to her side. Was that okay, he asked. Too easy, she said, gasping for air. He laughed. You're tired. Let's go back to the house. Not a chance, she said. I'm just getting started. She turned, intending to run once more, but in her haste she stumbled on the uneven ground and would have fallen if not for his steadying hands. He caught her gently, and in that moment held her so close she could see the starlit sky reflected in his eyes a great wheel of splendor turning above a world suddenly much larger than she could comprehend or even imagine. It should have frightened her, that endless, unfolding world, but it didn't. In it she beheld only beauty and possibility, and she leaned forward as if to touch the stars or else tumble headlong into that pinpricked darkness, and that is how she kissed him. Lighthouse would like to thank the following generous donors that make events like this possible. The Scientific, Cultural, and Facilities District, the National Endowment for the Arts and Artworks, Colorado Creative Industries, Denver Arts and Venues, and many others. For more information about Lighthouse Writers Workshop, please go to lighthousewriters.org.